Today is Juneteenth. For those of you who don't know Juneteenth, it was, um, if you lived in Texas for any period of time, which I did, it's a big deal. Texas being the last state to be notified that it was the end of slavery on June 19th. And so it took that long, so they claim it took that long for the the message to get there. There's some question on whether it actually took long for the message to get there or there was some resistance to the news, but that's, you know, that's for the historians to work out. But um, it's the official and final end in every state at that point. And I found myself giving talks on this day not, not, not intentionally, the past few years, and um, it's a, a retreat would align or something would happen. And it always feels appropriate to talk about liberation on this day. Not a big stretch, we talk about that <laughs> fairly regularly, but, um, but when I was thinking about, you know, when I was thinking about the events that actually happened, the amount of work the amount of labor, the amount of risk that people took with their lives to get to that point. It wasn't some nice people on high saying, oh, we had, a, we had an idea, we're going to end this now. It was a tremendous amount of struggle. And then soon after that moment arrived, there was a backlash almost instantly to dismantle it. and create another system of control. And so there's this struggle that leads to a liberatory moment and then a kind of backlash of habit, of confusion that results in undermining it and transforming it into another violent expression. It's kind of when you see those um, those images where they go from a very molecular level, come out to the view of the earth and then go out to the cosmic level and the molecular level and the cosmic level kind of look the same. They're organized similarly. This process of liberation that happens in this way, this discipline and this struggle, it doesn't look that different from what happens with us, right? There are moments of liberation and the backlash in those moments. We love the idea. <laughs> we love this idea socially, historically, and personally that there will be a liberatory moment and then the waves part, the sea is clear and we take a sailboat for the rest of the time. But it's not what happens. We, we, it's almost as if, at least spiritually speaking in this practice, it's almost as if that moment of freedom results in such an anxiety 
for the aspects of us that want to control that they come back with even more energy. And so then we have to become once again curious. At that moment, what can happen and what often happens, and people come into practice discussions saying this and, 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 and activists say this and so on, is deflation and hopelessness, right? We put in all this work for years. There was a liberatory moment. We're looking at this right now, right? We're in the middle of this in the country right now. It was this liberatory moment, and other people will have different ideas of what the liberatory moment is and what the control is. Okay, so we're not all in agreement <laughs> on what this process looks like. And at that point, we kind of deflate. Because there, we're so close in, especially if we're, I mean, I look at this in myself. When I was young, that deflation, younger than I am now, that deflation was quicker because I still had an idea that these things don't happen in cycles. They should happen in absolutes. We should win, whatever it is. Spiritually, I should win. Societally, I should win, whatever that is. There should be a heaven at the end, and things should be constant after that. Progress should become something in its end. And when you start living a while and you see the same things keep happening, there's a different, the Buddhist cosmos, the cyclical cosmos of Buddhism starts to make a little more sense. That it's not about ending up in some permanent place but about how we engage the cycle. And um, and how we take responsibility, because at some point in this, we actually have to take complete responsibility for our part in it. The part that looks out there for something to resolve or expects it to happen, or there are people who are going to turn a dial or do something so that it resolves, that that doesn't seem to happen so easily. And so I'm left in a place of total responsibility for myself and how I'm engaging. Now, I don't mean that in an individualist way. I, I, the communities needed, cultivation of communities needed cultivation of many things for, and at this point I'm talking about spiritual, but the other as well, for spiritual liberation to, um, to unfold. And mostly it seems to require a discipline of return, which we talk about, a discipline of returning to something over and over and over again. And in the beginning, this is, it seems exhausting. We don't really want to do it. We want, you know, we want to know how many times we need to return before this, we don't have to return anymore. And there's just not a limit to the amount of times we have to return. There's no limit. And once you're done with this life, eh, 
you might have a few more returns. But um, to rest in the discipline of returning becomes one of the tricks, one of the things that needs to happen which is just to finally rest in, oh, I'm going to be returning to this one and this process and what I'm doing forever, that it looks like a spiral, not a line. So if we remember back to Dogen's two aspirations, there is this moral action aspiring to wholesome moral action without attachment to outcome, and then there's this aspiring to the liberation of all beings. And so, if we take the aspiration for the liberation of all beings to be wholesome moral activity, if we look at it that way, then liberation is, an, if we bring them together, liberation is an aspiration it's an aspiration for the liberation of all beings without attachment to outcome. It is this returning without attachment to outcome. It is returning to vow. It is returning to our practice. It is returning to this heart of liberation. It is just returning. And it's very difficult for a while. It's always difficult, but it's less <laughs> over time difficult to return to this without um, really wanting the world to look a certain way, really wanting our life to look a certain way. And then there are these massive karmic headwinds that happen that can completely throw us back And, and sometimes people come in and say, look, I, I had this worked out for years and now it's back. What happened? What am I doing wrong that this is back? And I think it's really important in those points to really, this is where I find Dogen to be very helpful, which he said, don't confuse your experience with awakening or the liberation that's happening. Because sometimes what can be happening oftentimes what's happening is actually the body, mind, and heart are settling. And in the settling, something is revealed. So the experience is as if you went, whatever this means, went backwards. <laughs> and actually your body and mind and heart are just settling in such a way that something is revealed that you weren't able to tolerate seeing before. And so even though it feels like, ah, you know, this thing is happening and now I'm feeling misery, why am I feeling misery? Well, actually the experience of misery might be liberation in that moment. Might be seeing with something with the heart that we couldn't see before. So don't confuse. This is the thing. I think we fall in, in terms of practice, if we are discouraged by painful experience and only encouraged by pleasant experience, our practice is in big trouble. We actually can come to a point where we're encouraged by painful experience. 
where, we're, where we open something up and phew, this thing comes at it and say, good, you're finally here. Took long enough for me to be ready for this. Now we get to have a conversation about what's going on and what's been going on for a long time behind the curtain. And there's grief and there's healing and there's movement and there's a process that allows that to happen. But I want to talk about, I want to talk about just, because I think in times where it feels this mind of it's not going in the direction that feels liberatory for me. That to Emily's point yesterday about, um, well, I don't remember exactly how you phrased the question, but how do, we, how do we bring ourselves to commit when the future is not what we want it to be? You said it much better than that. <laughs> but, but, um, that there are, between hopelessness and this kind of falling or this feeling of not, of not having hope about something and the heart fully opening and engaging the world without needing hope, there are disciplines. There are things we commit to because the hope in and of itself is too fragile to get us there. It's too dependent on conditions. And so at a certain point, we just have to commit. Somebody asked me, well, how do you, how do you bring discipline in your life? Um, and how do you commit to discipline? And it's just, it's very little things. We talked about, you know, just not scratching an itch. Seems small but an enormous discipline, because if we can be still and not scratch an itch, then the mind is being trained to be stable with much more difficult things. And so we don't get moved around by the winds of whatever we like and dislike. Aversion starts to lose its power. In every situation where there's an impulse to do something and the mind is still, and that falls away, that by definition in that moment is freedom. If it just comes up and bam, we're doing it, th that is not freedom and that's what we're used to doing. But if we can see the impulse come up and we have the space and stability in the mind to ask a very simple question, is this good, is this wholesome, is this something I want to see in the world or is it not? Is it going to cause harm or is it going to manifest harmony? Simple and, and you can just feel that with your heart. When that comes up and we see that and then we act or do not act on that, that is freedom. And I don't want to confuse it with, you know, what in the West is called free will. Forget will. Will is such an egoic way of thinking about what we're doing. Stillness is what allows for freedom. Stillness and stability is what allows for freedom. And then, when something comes up and we see it, interestingly, there doesn't have to be a person there that says, 
I'm going to do X, life will sweep in and do the next thing. All of life is responding through me. I don't need some little person behind a curtain who has no idea what he's doing. So the things that we can do, the six things, this is just watching. This kind of comes from watching over the years. <laughs> and um, noticing what people do, what you all do, that you return to, and these things together kind of create a path or allow for a path that um, where freedom and transformation and freedom occur. Some of them are not going to surprise you. First one, you can guess. What? Yes, thank you very much. Who's that? Zazen, sitting Zazen. <laughs> By ourselves and with community. And, um, and for the reasons that we just talked about, Zazen does something very simple that has enormous effects, which is it just allows the mind to begin to slow down, stop, stabilize, and witness without grasping the phenomena that are arising in it. We just let things come and go. Now, every once in a while, we might use Zazen to focus on a particular area and, and discern something. But even if we're in the discerning process, I need to understand this particular pain that's happening here in my body based on some conditioning. Even if we're in the discerning process, we're not doing that with judgment or manipulation. We're still just letting those things rise and fall. We're just focused on a particular area so that we can discern what's rising and falling in that area of ourselves. We are not trying to make ourselves better. There's nothing wrong. The only thing wrong is that we think there's something wrong with ourselves. So the... Um, so to watch these things come and go so that the mind builds, becomes a stable witness. Now this has fabulous effects in the world because then we can be with other people's pain. Because when we can't be with other people's pain, it's actually not other people's pain we can't be with. It's the pain we're feeling in response to other people's pain that we cannot be with. Not their pain. It's, this is too much, or I can't take this, or this is overwhelming, or whatever it is. Fear, I'm afraid if this person's whatever it is. So we have to become very, very, very intimate with this, so that when another person is suffering, we have the capacity to be with that suffering and respond to it. So none of this, this, isn't, this whole thing about a stable mind is not just because it's a cool trick to have a stable mind. A stable mind is necessary to be a compassionate being in the world. This is what the Buddha was really clear on. He's like, if we're going to, if we're going to result, if, we're, if our actions are going toward ending suffering, if the first truth is there's suffering in the world, there's dukkha in the world, and that's the thing we're going to address, that's going to be basically the north star of spiritual practice then the only way we can do that is settle down. It's to quiet down and cultivate a heart and mind and body that can be with it. So this, this is the thing we have to, this is the thing we have to do. In this particular tradition, this is the thing we do first. 
as we start to quiet down. Now we have this thinking mind. This thing wants to go and go and go and it has lots of ideas. We do not neglect the thinking mind. There is kind of misunderstanding of Zen that we're just throwing out the thinking mind and trashing it and it's just bad. The thinking mind is a necessary part of um, what it is to be a human being. We don't grasp it. We try not to grasp it. But we do train it. So studying the second thing is studying the Buddha Dharma. Actually studying the text and studying the chants and studying and I, studying the Buddha Dharma is studying ritual. All of the things that we do that we actually study and the, the intellectual mind and, the, and the, the mind that conceives of the world begins to be transformed by this study. Now the interesting thing about these two together is that when we're studying the Buddha Dharma and we're sitting Zazen, they start to, those two things start to get in conversation with each other. Where all of a sudden something will happen in our experience and it will bring up something we're studying and we'll go, oh, now I understand what the ancestors were saying in that situation because I just experienced it. And the Buddha was very clear about this. Don't believe it until you confirm it in your own experience. Right? So there is this relationship between study and confirming the study. You study and you, you, you confirm the study in your own experience. Sometimes the study confirms, it goes the other way. Sometimes you read something and you, and, and you go, oh, that's what that was. And in dialogue with each other, it begins to build a kind of confidence in a different way of being by a body and mind in the world. Experience of this? People have this experience? <laughs> the third one, and maybe the hardest one, maybe, take total people who seem to be in a transformational process, take total responsibility for their minds and karma in every interaction. Now, in all of these, we fall, we fall and stand back up, fall and stand back up. But to really say, I am the one who is responsible for my way of responding to the world, I am responsible, not to say that it's my eternal fault because I'm conditioned and these kid, this came to me, but I am responsible for it. It's not helpful to turn it into a burning coal of humiliated guilt. <laughs> that is not helpful, right? When we're taking responsibility for ourselves, we're taking responsibility for ourselves recognizing that we are interdependent conditioned beings and that this is all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. I am a part of a river of that. There isn't this thing, what can actually, what often happens in, in this society is the river stops at some evil person at the center of you. And so, who wants to take responsibility for that? Like, well, none of us are going to. If we believe that, none of us will take responsibility for anything because it's too debilitating. We're just crushed by the very action of taking responsibility because it means I'm evil. 
right? So if that's the f way we're functioning and taking responsibility, then everybody's very shy, to say the least, to take responsibility. So we have to work on just dropping that idea, that organizing idea that there's some evil person at the center. And that we are, even if we are not the cause of our behavior, which many of our behaviors we are not the cause of, we are responsible for the behaviors. If we're going to do what the Buddha asked us to do, which is metabolize our karma and become compassionate beings that can address suffering in the world. If we're going to clarify ourselves so that we can address suffering in the world, we have to take responsibility for things that are not our fault. This is a real, this, this is a real sticking point in the current world. <laughs> it's that, this idea of I shouldn't have to take responsibility for things that I didn't personally cause. This is a load of nonsense. I, how do you get to a moral world if that's the case? How do we have a moral anything? You know, we have to take responsibility for things we didn't cause. So, this taking, taking total responsibility for our minds and our karma in all of our interactions with the world. Now what supports this is the fourth thing. Living a life of vow. Vow in, in Buddhism generally is a pretty big deal in the sense that Vow is what organizes our intention. Right? Up until a life of vow, we live a life of karma. And a life of karma basically means that unconscious, unconditioned things are forming our intentionality. We have, and we often have very little power over those intentions. After the fact that we tell ourselves that we did it, I did that. Now, but really there was this steamroller that came through that did what it wanted and then you're claiming it after the fact. So it's, it's very humbling to step back. It, it's, it's very, actually it's very, 12 step is really onto this. Very 12 step, step back and realize that you have zero control over most of your actions, right? And to really admit that there's zero control over most of my actions until I start a practice of witnessing them. You know, and to step back from them. So there is this, there is this, um, there's this living by karma that's happening. And karma doesn't just go away when um, we are going to be conditioned beings who are acting out of self, a kind of attachment to self that plants seeds that manifest as that same behavior in another, at another time. That's going to happen. But what vow does by organizing our intentions around particular vows is it engages that karmic flow. It brings that, it kind of brings that karmic flow into a kind of focus. And instead of it just flying all over the place, based on whatever happened to us, it starts to corral it and say, okay, these are the intentions. So if something comes up, now you can see why zazen becomes important. Because if the mind and heart are stable, then when something arises, an impulse arises, very simple question, is this in line with my vow? Or is it not? 
and then you decide what you're going to do at that moment. But there has to be a stability to be able to even see that and note it and then align with vow. And this vow, we devote, you know, that it's, it's devoting ourselves to embodying, I mean, what we do specifically in this is we, we devote ourselves to embodying the precepts. The vows we take are the precepts. And the precepts are not something that have um, hard, fast conclusions or outcomes. They're very much in line with Dogen's idea of not holding on to the outcomes of our actions. But also, ethics in Buddhism is contextual. There isn't, we, we feel into what the precepts are right here. And in another situation, the action may look very different based on what that context is. And so it's very, very alive. It's a kind of heart aliveness in the world. The precepts are waking up the heart so that the heart can be engaged in moral relationship. You know, so one of the things, and, and if we don't do that, it can become very, we can end up with a very calcified, hardened, stubborn, stupid morality. Right? Where where we're focused, on, we're focused on being just in the world, but we treat this person, we scream at this person. So we're not, we're not asking the question. We can be focused on a kind of absolute morality, but not ask the question, am I in just relationship with this person right in front of me? Am I in just relationship with everyone that I'm encountering? How do I think I'm going to manifest justice in the world if I can't be in just relationship with the people I'm with? This is just a, a, a stubborn abstraction at that point. So the heart has to open to a dynamic engagement of the world and the precepts are there, the vows are there to support that opening. And they are hard. You know, I vow not to praise self at the expense of others. Boy, that one sticks around a while. And then just gets more and more subtle and more and more subtle and more and more subtle. And sometimes we're praising ourselves at the expense of ourselves. Praise one aspect of ourselves while we're condemning another. So sitting zazen, studying the Buddha Dharma, taking total responsibility for our minds and karma, and living a life of vow. Then another important thing, Dogen talks a lot about this too, is that we go, we go to someone or we engage someone when we conf to confess our confusion. And what Dogen in the Heihei Koso Hotsu Ganmon what he says is our lack of faith, right? Our lack of faith in the practice, our lack of faith in the Buddha Dharma, our lack of, because there will be moments, many, where the egoic aspect of ourselves is like, no, I, I'm not gonna do this. This is exhausting, I don't trust it, it hurts too much, I've gone through enough of my own illumination of my, it's just, no, 
And that is going to happen. And it's not, it's not actually a problem. It's painful, but it's not a problem. We're talking about working through and dropping an orientation of our perception and our being that we've had our entire lives <laughs> and that everyone else around us also has, right? And so to, to transform that is going to be bumpy ride. So it's going to be a very bumpy ride. Actually, bumpy ride's interesting. Dukkha basically means a bumpy ride, right? It's, a, it's an axle that is not in the wheel correctly so that the wheel wobbles. So it's going to be a bumpy ride. The whole thing's a bumpy ride. But we have to be able to go to somebody and confess that confusion and that lack of faith. If we keep it to ourselves, we'll walk out. We'll sneak out and we won't come back. You know? And, and there, so to be able to actually bring into... Um, to bring into the community, to bring to teachers, whatever feels comfortable for people. I'm doubting all this right now. Good. Good, you're doubting it all right now. So what is it now? Now the practice is, what is it to engage the mind of doubt? It's one of the major hindrances. Corrosive doubt is the biggie. When we talk about them, you know, it's, it's, it's sloth torpor, restlessness, um, sensual, uh, we they, it's a kind of sensual lust is the way it really translates, aversion, and then um, doubt. And doubt is the one that gets us. The rest are workable, but when doubt gets under it and we start believing doubt, doubt takes no prisoners. And then really the only way to deal with doubt is to confess it. You cannot negotiate with it. It knows you. It's really funny when we start to negotiate with our own doubt, as if the doubt isn't me and doesn't know all of my tactics, right? It's, if I come in, it's going to say, yeah, I know what you're doing, and, and what about this? So it, 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 it makes no sense to try to negotiate with doubt. Just call it what it is, confess it, recognize what it's doing, and move on. And then what we talked about yesterday, the sixth one, is to cultivate a heart of service, which flows through everything else. Right? This heart of service and showing up in service of everyone's liberation affects the way we sit zazen, affects the way we study the Buddha Dharma, affects the way we take responsibility, because that is an act of service to others too and ourselves. It affects living by vow, and it affects our confessing our confusion and our lack of faith because all of this is coming from a heart of service to all beings. We have to do, if we cultivate our heart, the heart of service, we have to do the first five. Like, there's no other choice. If I'm going to actually live from that place, I have to do the first five. I have to study, I have to, to still my mind, I have to study wisdom, I have to take responsibility for myself, I have to have vows that hold me, and, and I have to confess when all this thing is confused. Otherwise, I don't have, I can't live for service of other people. And so those, those 
six ways of coming. And what I have seen is, it seems to be, and there's no list, this exact list, I don't know that it is anywhere um, in the teachings, but it doesn't contradict them. Um, these are the six things I see people do. And it's almost like uh, going from the shallow end of the pool into the deeper end. Like one by one they get picked up until all of them are happening. And then those people are usually in it for a while. So taking these things up and returning to them they will build the discipline and then we have to take that discipline and return to them again and all of this requires a community doing the same thing it is almost impossible to do on our own it requires a community that's encouraging us to do it and the why is all of it required is because the aspiration to live for the liberation of all beings cannot be a weak idea. It cannot just be an idea. Right? An idea has no power. Everybody talks about idea, 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 so much power. Idea, has, idea only has power because people either put a whole lot of money behind the idea <laughs> or the idea is driven into a discipline that actually cultivates strength of purpose. But if you watch your ideas, how quick they flip in and out and how often they have no effect on our lives. Uh, there's lots of ideas of things that I think would be good to, for me. Do I do most of them? Not really. Because I haven't actually put in the, I haven't ritualized what's necessary for that idea to manifest as a real practice. And when I don't do that, the idea doesn't have feet. And when I do do it, it changes who I am. So I will stop there, and that is just a way of encouraging folks to think about doing these six things. Sitting Zazen, studying the Buddha Dharma, taking responsibility for mind and karma, living a life of vow. That's a little more intense. That might take a little bit. Um, Confess confusion and lack of faith in the practice and cultivating a heart of service. Take those things up and see what happens. And for those of you who are already doing it, keep on doing it. And what will happen out of those six things is that the community will become very strong. Because those are also aspects of human behavior that strengthen community. Okay, thank you all for listening. May our thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.